Hi everyone, I'm Becky. And I'm Rohan, and welcome to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors and leaders outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories about how they got to where they are today. Hi everyone, and welcome to our first episode of After Office Hours. Today we have Dr. Craig Henriquez with us. Dr. Henriquez is a professor in the Biomedical Engineering Department at Duke. He was a former chair of the Biomedical Engineering Department and was one of the founders of the Duke Center for Neuroengineering. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing to hear about all that Dr. Henriquez is involved with on campus. And one thing that really stood out to me in particular was his passion for teaching. Just this past summer, he created a new epidemiology course that was sort of inspired by the COVID pandemic for Duke students, and I think that just goes to show how innovative and creative of a person he is. Yeah, definitely. A lot of times you see professors who are sometimes primary, primarily they're researchers and on the side they teach. I think with Dr. Enriquez, you can really tell that both teaching and research are top priorities for his, and he kind of explains how he sees them as one and the same. Yeah, in this podcast, we delve into some of the research initiatives that he started, and we also sort of delve into his love for Duke basketball and just how campus and how the Duke community has changed over the years. I mean, Dr. Enriquez has been here for so long that it's just really cool to see how everything has grown. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Enriquez, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, I kind of just wanted to start at the beginning um, and hear a little, about where you're fr- a little bit about where you're from and what brought you to Duke originally as an undergrad. Yeah, that's a long story. So, um, so if you've read my bio, you know that I came here in 1977 for the first time. So that is uh, 43 years ago. So that's a long time. Um, and Duke was definitely a different place. And I actually, you know, it's funny because my son is applying to colleges right now. And, you know, he's been sort of affected by COVID Mm -hmm. and hasn't had a chance to visit colleges like, you know, most people get a chance to do. Uh, We had plans to go, you know, travel around in the summer and look at all the colleges and things like that. But um, back in my day, um, you know, it was a little bit of that. I traveled a little bit, went to a couple colleges, but I had never seen Duke. I'd never visited Duke. Uh, I'd been to North Carolina once. Um, my father went to school in South Carolina, really by chance, uh, a small little college in the middle of nowhere. And he had some connection in North Carolina and said he always wanted to go to Duke. So I said, okay, I'll apply there. Uh, it wasn't my top choice because I knew nothing about it, but I went sight unseen. So the first time I saw Duke uh, in 1977 is when I arrived on campus as a freshman that my son may end up doing the same thing. He may go to a school that he's never seen before. Right. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, high school seniors who are in that a similar position right now. Yeah, exactly. Well, they have virtual tours now. So I just, I got to see like a picture of the chapel and that was pretty much it. <laughs> wow. I mean, <laughs> you've been at Duke uh, since then. So I think that's... Yeah, I took, I, I took a two-year break. Um, I took a two-year break and then I came back in 1983 and started my graduate work. Uh, so but pretty much continuously since uh, 1977. Wow. That's, it's, um, we'd love to sort of hear more about uh, sort of later on how you think Duke has changed because that's a really, it's really cool that you've been here 
for so long. Yeah, sort of to following up, following up on that, you know, what sort of led you into engineering? Were you sort of one of those kids who tinkered around with gadgets and devices as a kid? Or did you make the decision after you came to college? Yeah, you know, looking back, thinking about that question, um, you know, so I grew up in the 60s. Um, and that is when the, uh, you know, the United States made this big quest to go to the moon. Uh, so the space program was huge when I was growing up, and it was everywhere. You know, it was like the most, you know, amazing thing that you can imagine. And I, I was definitely caught up into that uh, experience. I mean, watching the, you know, the astronauts go into space, it was like, you know, everybody who's uh, crowded around their TV sets to watch that. Uh, the moon landing. Uh, I remember when we were in um, sixth grade, we basically created our own uh, lunar module uh, out of cardboard. Uh, that people could actually sit inside and covered it with tin foil to make it look like the lunar module and uh, actually recreated our own um, our own sort of uh, you know uh, soundtrack for what it was to get on the moon for the first time so I think that is when I sort of got interested in engineering was when I was in elementary school Um, but you know as you know you don't really know what an engineer is unless you have one in your household and I didn't have any engineers in my household uh, but yeah, I guess you could say I like tinkering, you know, I like taking stuff apart. Wasn't very good at putting it back together, but I was definitely good at uh-huh. taking it apart. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, probably somewhere in there is an engineer's genes, but I didn't have really a sense of what an engineer was. Uh, I think when I was in high school, I thought about chemical engineering as a, as a direction. Um, and then, uh, when I, when I was, well, I got into Duke, I got into two schools, I only applied to four, I uh, got into two schools and one of them uh, had a chemical engineering program, but Duke did not. So Duke had biomedical engineering, which I again knew nothing about. Um, you know, at the time Duke had this, uh, this biomedical engineering program, it was only seven years old, really. I mean, and one of the first ones as an undergraduate program. So it was really new for me and knew, I think, in the whole world as to what biomedical engineering was. So that sounded interesting to me. And, uh, and so I really sort of came to Duke kind of interested, but not knowing what it was. Right, yeah. I mean, I know biomedical engineering, even right now, relatively speaking, is a new field. So back, back when you chose to pursue that, it was, like you said, brand new completely. Um, what, was, what was that like being in such a new department and in a new field during your undergrad? Yeah, you know, uh, you know the first the first thing I remember um, sort of really getting hooked on engineering was my um, computation class. I forget what it was called back then. Um, you know, EGR fifty one or something like that. It was or 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 yeah, I think that's what it was, something like that. Um, and you know, we had to do computer programming. And I know some people were doing computer programming in high school, but I had no experience at all in it. And so that was like, wow, this is really cool. You can build, you know, write something and make it do something. Except the coding back then was pretty arduous. Uh, You know, I tell students that, you know, the way that you would code is that you would, um, you would walk to a, a device where you'd actually key in with a punch card your code line by line. So you actually take a a card that was basically a rectangular card that had little uh, spots on it that you would, uh, you know, put an A or B or A equal, whatever, 
uh, and each line was a separate card. And then you assemble those cards and then you would put it into a card reader. And that card reader would then turn it into code that then some giant computer somewhere in the world, uh, I think it was somewhere in RTP, would process it and then it would spit out the results in a long, gigantic sheet of paper that was like maybe, you know, a foot and a half or two foot, feet by one foot. Um, and, uh, and then at the end of all that, you'd make it something that says syntax error. And then you'd have to go back, find the error, which means find the card, type a new one, stick it back in the deck, redo the whole thing over again. And so this was, you know, I mean, if you're going to program back then, you basically had to plan out an entire night uh, just to get one program assignment done. That's so different than anything so different. we're used to at all. I mean, you guys have it so easy. You can sit in your dorm room, you can sit in a coffee shop, but literally you had to be somewhere. And we found out early that there was a place in BioSci that, that had a card, read, a card uh, key punch that nobody used, right? None of the biologists used it. And so we would end up there and we'd spend our entire night there uh, writing code and trying to get it to run through the computer. Wow. I think sometimes I press compile like 37 times in one. <laughs> yeah, that, that didn't happen. It, usually, yeah, right. it, was, it was probably like to, to write a 20 line piece of code. Uh, it was maybe an hour to just get it through the whole process, you know, to get it in, read it through the card reader, get the result back. Uh, it was really painful, but it was wow. a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And so that's where I learned to code. And at that point, I said, wow, this, I, I can see myself doing something like this. Um, and it was really, it got a little bit better over time, but certainly in the very beginning, that's what, that was coding. Um, right. But, you know, BME was born out of electrical engineering. So it really didn't look a lot different from electrical engineering in the very beginning. Um, and I know a lot of students now complain about the fact that we have a lot of electrical engineering classes. And that's because we even had more when I was a student. And so um, it's because it really came out of electrical engineering. And it's only been recently that now it's sort of be morphed into chemistry and biology and, and a lot of new fields. So it's real exciting to see where BME was. But at the time, you know, I think we had one faculty member doing biomaterials at the time. Uh, and so it was, you know, mostly people doing something in electrical type engineering or mechanics. Wow, I mean, <laughs> that sounds really cool. And now I feel also really bad for any sort of complaints I've had about our homework. <laughs> you can't complain about your homework. Because not only that, we had to type everything on a typewriter. Um, you know, so every, every lab report was done on a typewriter, which means that if you made a mistake, you had to go in either, you know, white it out with a little, with a little uh, ink that whited out the thing or, or redo the entire page itself. You know, no word processors to go in and fix stuff, so. Wow. <laughs> so that's a pretty interesting glimpse into what it was like academically for you more towards like the social aspect what was it like being in college being at duke uh during those years i know there are a bunch of old duke traditions and just like nonsense that, that we do now um did any of that stuff go on back in the day yeah it was um you know i, I think college life really hasn't changed you know remarkably over the years i think you guys have a lot more uh opportunities than we did uh we were pretty much on our own uh, you know, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't quite the support system that there is now. Uh, you know, if anything, if there was any problem, we didn't have a connection to the, you know, you, you may call your parents once a week, maybe once a month. Uh, uh, you know, you, you were, we were still using mail. Uh, you know, I found it about a month ago, I found a, uh, a letter I wrote to my parents when I was first on campus. 
um, explaining how I had to do drop ad. So drop ad, you literally had to go to, um, I think we went to card and stood in a giant line. I all remember about Duke when I was here is I stood in lines all the time. I was in lines <laughs> to do drop ad. I was in line to get my books for the beginning of the semester. I was in line to get into basketball games. It was just always in lines. Uh, that, that, that sort of stuck with me. But, uh, yeah, I mean, campus life is, you know, it's just a variant of what it was. But uh, the sort of things that I did when I was in – well, I, I did go to a lot of basketball games. It was different then. You didn't have to camp out. Um, uh, so we would go pretty early, bring our books, and, and work from there. It was definitely – it was like the Wild West in, in Cameron back in when I was a student. Uh, it was – you know, it was dangerous to be at the opposing team when we were we were there. It's calmed down a lot, uh, but it definitely was a, a a dangerous place to be an opposing team or opposing coach because um, the fans were literally on top of the bench. I mean, you know how the how the fans are on the opposite side now. That's because we were literally on top of them. You know, so during a timeout, the the fans would be yelling and screaming into the bench during the timeout. So it was it was pretty wild. But, uh, yeah, I went to a lot of basketball, played a lot of Frisbee golf. I remember doing that a lot. Um, and, you know, the typical stuff that, that, that students do. Yeah, you, you were speaking a lot about studying in lines. I think it's um, even more sort of interesting because right now, considering we're in a pandemic, everything has sort of shifted the exact opposite way as, as right. the person as you described. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, jumping off that, um, we actually wanted to ask, sort of read our minds about, uh, basketball. I mean, I know you've been at Duke for all five national championships. You know, how has that been? You sort of described that a little bit about how it was so, a little more dangerous for the other team um, back in the day, but how, how else have things changed? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, back when I first came to Duke, I had no interest in, in college basketball. I mean, college basketball, I think at that point, wasn't well known uh, nationally. Uh, they rarely televised games. In fact, the first televised game from Cameron was when I was a student. I, I was there for the first time it was ever nationally televised. It was locally televised, um, and it was regionally very hot around North Carolina. So uh, you definitely got into college basketball, but I had no I had interest in sports and watching sports, but certainly not college basketball. Um, but certainly once you were in that environment, you were – you know, you know, you were sort of captivated by the excitement and the crowd and the traditions and all that other stuff. Um, what has changed, I think, is is the fact that uh, it's become much more of a national. It's become much more nationally prominent, and that happened because of the NCAA tournament becoming a live event and people watching it and getting excited by it. So I was able to sort of see Duke through all that entire period. In fact, you know, I, I, I tell people I'm here longer than Coach K, which is pretty amazing uh, because we had a different coach uh, back then. But, um, but he came when I was a senior, and, uh, and then I was away for two years. Um, and Duke was really bad when I was away, so I, I sort of credit to the fact that I wasn't there, that Duke was bad. And then when I came back, Duke got better. And, um, and then – they went to the national championship game in 86 and Duke has been on this unbelievable ride since then. So uh, it's sort of been fun to watch it uh, sort of be able to sort of see the development of the program and make it, you know, into a national power. And, you know, that was really surprising because I had, I never would have imagined. I remember when I was, a, I was a, um, 
see uh, a freshman Duke went to the national championship game uh, against Kentucky. And uh, I remember my friends then telling me, I said, you know, this may be the only time Duke ever gets the national championship game. This could be it. And so <laughs> we were all like devastated when Duke lost that game because, you know, we were definitely on a Cinderella run. I mean, nobody expected Duke to get to play Kentucky. And we probably could have won except this one player, uh, Goose Givens, had the game of his life. He scored like 48 points or something like that uh, out of nowhere. I mean, it was like, you know, who is this guy? He wasn't that good, but somehow became uh, known for this amazing game. And uh, uh, and Duke lost, and I sort of had this feeling like, well, I'm never going to see Duke ever in a national championship game again. Although we were ranked number one the next year, and then we lost, you know, the following uh, tournament in the second round. And it was like, okay, this is this is what everyone predicted. We'll never see Duke in the national championship game. <laughs> I don't think so many people can say they've been a Duke longer than Coach K. That's definitely an accomplishment. Absolutely. <laughs> Other than um, basketball, um, academically, what, what what were you really involved in as an undergrad? And then also, how did that influence your decision to pursue a PhD after that? Yeah, you know, uh, it's funny. I... Um, as I was going through undergraduate, uh, I made a decision somewhere, I think junior year, to, to double major in electrical engineering. Um, I can't remember exactly what made me do that, but I really liked my electrical engineering classes. I, I, I sort of found them fascinating. And, uh, and so I decided to do it. It was kind of late in the game, so I had to end up taking a lot of the uh, courses, the introductory courses over again. Uh, I tell, uh, you know, I've told people this story that I went into one of the professors and I said, you know, uh, are you going to make me take signals and systems again? Because I've already taken signals and systems. And they said, yeah, you need to take that over again. I said, but I've already had this material like four times. Why do I need to take the basic class? And he, you know, he said something sort of, you know, snarky like, uh, you know, you BMEs are always trying to get through, you know, the system the easy way. I said, okay, I'll take the class. And it was like, you know, it was. It was ridiculous. I took it my second semester senior year, a course that I had already taken, you know, the the basic class and the upper upper level class, and then I had to go back and take that that introductory class again. Um, so you can do Fourier transforms in your sleep, right? Yeah, I could do Fourier transforms in my sleep, uh, and so so that I think it was sort of the sort of the that year. Actually, my senior year is when I really felt like I was becoming an engineer, right? It was like right at my senior year that it all sort of came together. And I was involved in a couple projects, cor project courses uh, taught by Professor Barr, uh, who's still here at Duke, who's been here longer than I have. So that's, that's even crazier. Uh, Professor Barr was an undergraduate here. And then um, I think he graduated 64 or something like that. So Professor Barr has been here forever and literally continuously since he was an undergraduate student. Um, and he taught this course, which was a fascinating course on microprocessors, where we literally had to build something and nobody, nobody in the entire um, um, department, either undergraduate or graduate student, knew anything about these microprocessors. He had just got a, a bunch of these kits and he just sort of threw it at us and said, make it, make something work. And uh, and so that was the first time I felt like, wow, I'm a, if I can do that, I can actually be an engineer. And then I took his follow-up course, 
uh, second semester senior year. And at that point, I really said, I think I could be an engineer. I mean, I think I really will like this. And then it was over, right? It was over. But I had made the decision, I think, the beginning of my senior year that I wasn't going to go to graduate school or get a job. I was going to take a break. Uh, I needed a break. Gotcha. So I took a break for a year. Um, my parents were pretty worried about me. Uh, you know, why am I taking a break? You know, you know, they spent all this money to send me to college. Uh, but then it was in my, the year after that break, uh, that I decided to go back to graduate school. And um, I hadn't taken GREs, so I wasn't able to apply in that, in that interim. And so I had to wait a whole another year. And um, it was at that point that I, I was a substitute teacher. I was I, I subbed in my uh, old junior high school and high school. I taught math and chemistry, and then they hired me full time for basically half a year. I taught eighth grade math and eleventh grade chemistry. Um, and That's so cool. I also taught a computer programming class to uh, to um, uh, to middle schoolers. Um, and so at that point, it was like, yeah, now I want to, you know, I want to pursue a PhD. It's interesting that you mentioned um, sort of it sounds like what was like a version of design back then. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we had no design requirement. And uh, and so what we did is we, you know, Professor Barr created this uh, design course um, basically from scratch. It was the first time ever offered. And uh, and, you know, it was really sort of a fascinating uh, really, I think, tested our 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 skill sets more than anything that I had ever done before. And, you know, I'm forever grateful for that class, because I think if not for that class, I probably would have pursued something else. I would have probably gone in a different direction. Uh, But then at that point, I realized, well, I think I can do this. And um, and uh, and so that was that was sort of an important turning point. But it was so late. Right. It was so late in your career because we were we did a lot of you know theoretical work and preparatory work and it was pretty dry up until that moment um although we did do a our design back then and it was true for a long time was a course called well it's what bme 354 is now was bme 164 back then i had it with professor von rom who's also been here forever um, wow and yeah it's odd that i i you know i'm colleagues now uh with two professors that i had as as undergraduate students so uh uh, it took me a while to start to call them by their first names, but um, <laughs> but sure. but uh, he um, uh, he taught a design course, and that that design experience was not very good for me. I had a bad experience. I ended up taking an incomplete in that class, and then finished the 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 incomplete over the summer, and um, and I always remember that experience as like, if you're gonna do a project, you better start it early, and you better have a plan. And uh, and so uh, I learned a lot from that experience. But um, yeah, we didn't have a formal design course. In fact, we didn't have a formal design course in the in the program for I would say at least fifteen more years. It's also really cool to see that you felt that design. You learned so much from that design course. I mean, I think uh, I feel the exact same way that I've sort of becoming more of like an actual engineer um, senior year. So I think that's really cool that you sort of felt the same way. Yeah, and it, it certainly has shaped the way that I teach. Um, you know, I've always had this philosophy, and I've told students this, is that you'll forget every test you take, but you'll remember every project you did. 
Uh, and so, you know, and mostly because those projects usually were pretty arduous. You know, you'll remember not necessarily all the details of the project, but you'll remember the fact that you were stayed up really late trying to get something to work or, you know, that it worked the night before, but not the day of the presentation. You know, the, all those little uh, horror stories. Uh, but it, it, this, it's such an experience to actually get a project working. Um, and, and then to do it with, with uh, fellow students and, and helping each other over the humps to, you know, get something to work. Uh, that's what I found most exciting about engineering. So I've always had a design project in every single class I've taught since I was uh, a first-time teacher. I've had a design pro oh, a project, wow. which is amazing because some of those courses currently don't have projects, but I had them in every class and um, because I felt like people would remember them. I don't know if they did, but, you know, they do remember when I, when I asked them, they say, yeah, I remember doing a project, but they don't remember the fine details. <laughs> No, I, I completely agree. I um, During my senior year, we've definitely had the opportunity to do more project-based classes and stuff like that. And 100%, like during physics and math and the basic engineering classes, I A, didn't feel like an engineer and B, like you said, I would take a test and then literally forget everything the next day. Right. But now actually doing projects, I like I feel like I'm building things and doing things and I'm actually an engineer. Yeah, and you know, what's, what's, what's interesting about that point and you know, it's something that uh, I, I think I learned as a graduate student is that as you move up in terms of the complexity of the projects that you do, like you know, the sort of work that you do as a PhD student, uh, particularly in the area that I work in, in sort of computational electrophysiology, all those math and physics classes become very, very important, right? The ones that you sort of forgot, it's like that basic understanding is critical to the sort of things that I ended up doing. Uh, so it's when you see the application of those, those basic concepts to something else is when it actually all sort of comes together. So it's like, oh, wow, why did I have to learn multivariate calculus? Well, when you do the kind of work that I do, it becomes clear as to why you need to, to learn that. But it's not obvious at the time. And so I think teaching it in the context of a project definitely makes it more compelling, but it's, it's actually much more challenging to teach it and to you know, get students behind it. Uh, it takes it takes a while, but I think projects are the great way of sort of bringing everything you've done together into one you know sort of experience. Yeah, I think it's uh, really good to hear that talking on that experience, you know, so many years past that, sort of you remember how much of an impact that had on you, uh, Doctor Farr's class. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I literally can almost remember you know being in. Well, of course, I've never left this place, but uh, <laughs> you know, there there are lots of funny stories about that year. Uh, you know, with the guy that I worked with, John Allison, who I remained friend, friends with over the over the 40 years, um, you know, we couldn't uh, do all of our work during the day. It was just too hard. It's too sort of busy. Uh, so we had to work at night. And he worked for Dr. Von Rahm uh, as, a, as a research assistant. So he actually had a key. And there, there was like a master key that would allow you to get into any door in Hudson Hall. And so, but there was, but there was the place that we needed to work was actually in, um, was actually in the uh, upstairs of Hudson in the third floor of Hudson. I don't know if you've ever been up there, but there used to be some offices up not. there. <laughs> yeah, there's a third floor. And, uh, and so on occasion we, we needed to get in there. So we would get the key out of somebody's office, you know, and we would, you know, so we'd get in it and then somehow get ourselves into the into that upstairs office to work 
uh, late at night, but only because <laughs> he had so awesome. only because he had access to that key that we were able to do that. But you know, we would work from like midnight to three in the morning and have full access to all the tools and all the ability to to debug. Um, but I remember, you know, late nights coming back to my dorm, you know, him driving me back, and you know, us thinking about this. we thought about this project like twenty four seven. I don't think we thought about anything else except <laughs> that project. And the rest of the classes, I don't even know how I survived that that year, but we did get our project to work, so I'm really proud of that. Well, that's really cool. And you know, I have to ask also, since you know, I know there are several other professors who did their undergrad at Duke who are also still here. I mean, did you know? Well, yeah. So it's sort of a funny story about those folks. Um, so, uh, so Doctor um, Nightingale was a student a little bit after when I was an undergraduate student. Uh, both night, there were two Nightingales and both of them were students, but both of them were graduate students. Uh, so uh, uh, Roger Nightingale was a graduate student right at the tail end of when I was a, uh, a graduate student here. Uh, so I knew him sort of as a friend. Um, and uh, Kathy Nightingale was, was a graduate student after I became a faculty member here because she went away. She actually was... Um, uh, in the um, air, no army, I think army. Uh, she was in ROTC, and so she had to do her sort of training. Uh, and then after that, she decided to come back. So she sort of took a delay and came back after I became a faculty member. So I had, I didn't know her until she came back. Uh, Professor Wolf worked in the department um, for another faculty member, not uh, in BME, uh, for several years before he went to graduate school. So when I was a faculty member, he was in graduate school, uh, even though he's older than me. Um, and uh, I actually was his TA once. In fact, I was the I, I taught Roger Nightingale. I taught Professor Myers, um, and I taught. Uh, I was a TA for uh, for um, Professor Wolf. So those are that's the, those are the connections that I had. But you're right. There's a lot of us who sort of went here and. Um, sort of continued on here. That's so that's so cool to hear. Like such like a big group of people have stayed at Duke um, through their undergrad, PhD, and now as faculties. Just wondering what what has kept you at Duke for so long, and and continuing with you with your story. How um, did you choose to stay at Duke for your PhD, and then as a faculty, um, what made you stay here as well? Yeah. So um, after taking a two year break, I said. You know, I think coming back to Duke felt like it was going to be a new place for me, and um, and I liked I liked Duke. Uh, I, I certainly liked my experience here, but um, I never felt like I got connected at all to uh, the community or Durham. Right? You know, I think undergraduates have a tendency to be a little bit. Well, now a lot of them are living out in the community because of COVID, but uh, you know, you kind of get a little insular. And I didn't feel like I had a very good sense of what it was to to do that. So I thought if I came back to graduate school here, and and you know the BME program at the time and and Duke in general was highly valued as a BME program. So uh, I know I wanted to continue. Uh, I knew I wanted to do something in computation because I got very interested in that. Um, and then uh, and so then when I applied uh, and got accepted. Um, I got a phone call from uh, a professor Plonzi. Uh, so if you ever took the electrobiology track, you know the Plonzi and Barr book. Uh, and I took a, uh, I got a phone call by Professor Plonzi, who asked me if he, if I wanted to be his graduate student. And um, of course, I didn't know him. He was actually 
brand new to Duke. He had come the year that I had left, um, and uh, and then he and then he told me a little bit about his story, and then I said, uh, "Oh yeah, I remember you. You were the old guy in Professor Barr's class because he had come for a sabbatical, and he would sit in in Dr. Barr's microprocessor class and sat in the front of the room, and we were always like whispering, who is that old guy up in the front of the room?'" And uh, and so I told him that in the in my interview, I said, oh, yeah, you were the old guy in the, in the front row. Now I realize that he's like four years younger than I am now. Uh, so I'm the old guy. Um, but he um, he was a very influential faculty uh, or uh, researcher and scientist in the field of BME. Uh, he was widely considered one of the fathers of biomedical engineering uh, in his work at Case Western Reserve University. Uh, was a national leader in a number of the BME uh, areas, but I didn't know this at the time. I only sort of discovered it when I came here for the first time and met him for the first time. Um, and so, you know, I came back to Duke, uh, wanted to do computation. He was a sort of a computationally minded uh, and also a theoretician. He was mostly a theoretician. He didn't really know anything about computing, uh, so that I had to do that by myself. Um, and uh, it was just a great fit, and you know, I, I really valued my experience with him. And so I came back and, and did that work, and um, I really never thought I'd stay here as a faculty member. In fact, you know, every indicator was, and everybody told me, you know, there's a very little chance that I would stay here as a faculty member. And um, you know, through some strange, you know, apparently some crazy faculty meeting, three people got hired at the same time uh, who were current Duke uh, graduate students, um, well, or just finishing their graduate degrees. And so we all got hired at the same time. I think they expected us to all kind of, you know, one of us might succeed and two of us might fail. And so we, they'd never see two of us anyway. Uh, so I tell the story, you know, nowadays, you know, a faculty member um, gets a job offer. Uh, it's a courting experience. You know, like they court you and they, wine and dine you and and then and then you know they make you an offer and usually you have a, uh, you know you have a couple of offers that you're actually trying to negotiate and they give you a startup package you know and the startup package is sizable it can be anywhere from a half a million to one and a half million dollars to get your lab off the ground and I tell you know people that my startup package was the that I got the key to my office which was the same key that I has a graduate student and so in the fact the office that I'm in right now is the office that I, was, I had when I was a graduate student. So I've been in this wow. office from 1983. I've never been outside this office, it's the same one. I used to share it with two other people, but you know, now it's my own, but it's the same office. It's in Hudson, right? It's in Hudson. Yeah. yeah. I think I remember a little bit from BME 244. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's the same office. Uh, it still has a few things in here from way back when. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I've never looked. So that was my startup package. And I got no whining and dining. Nobody, nobody took me out to dinner. They just said, you're hired. I'm sure it must be weird to uh, be on the other side of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was chair for uh, uh, two and a half to three years here and, um, you know, having to recruit faculty and, and try to encourage them to come here. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a process. And, um, and so, you know, watching that develop over time has been really interesting, but yeah, the first few of us who got hired, uh, the sort of new new crop of uh, faculty that got hired, myself, Professor Myers, Professor New, who just retired last year, um, we all got hired at the same time. And, um, 
And, uh, you know, we, we literally were given nothing except an opportunity to, to start and be a faculty member. Wow. You know, I sort of you've spoken a lot about, you know, it sounds like you've had a lot of really great mentors. Um, you know, Dr. Ponzi was a great mentor. Yeah. Can you Could you t- sort of tell us a little bit more about how that experience was and sort of about possibly any other mentors that sort of influenced you and how working with them was and how that sort of shaped your interest and career? Yeah, I mean, I think what I learned in graduate school that is that, um, you know, you really have to sort of go out and seek the expertise that you need to be successful. And, you know, as I mentioned, Professor Plonzi wasn't a computational scientist. Um, he was a theoretician. He had a, he had a lot of graduate students who did computation, but he himself, that was not his area of expertise. And so, you know, I would have to seek out people in computer science who would help me develop, um, uh, you know, these skills over time. Uh, you know, there was a, a computer science faculty member, Tom Galley, who worked in this area that I uh, got to know and helped me with the, the work that I did. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, Professor Barr, who was more computationally minded, uh, was also a mentor of mine over the years. Um, and then, you know, I've continued that practice of sort of connecting with people with expertise that I don't have. And that's sort of been the sort of, you know, best part of being a faculty member is you can always find somebody smart out there to work with and who can teach you things. And so, um, so you know, it, it's really... It's not like you're one, you have one person that completely um, determines the mentorship. It's, it's, a, it's a network of mentors, and I sort of maintain it. And that's what I recommend to students and what I recommend to faculty is you basically create a network of mentors as you go through your process because no one person has all the expertise in all the areas that, that, you, uh, that you desire. Yeah, absolutely. Transitioning a little bit to talk about your research, if you were, let's just say, on NPR morning radio and, and they asked you to explain uh, the impact of and what your research is about um, in, in a short sentence, what, what would you say? Yeah, my research is, is uh, if I were to say it as briefly as possible, is basically to understand the fundamental mechanisms, mechanisms of uh, cardiac arrhythmia and um, and use uh, computational models to derive insight into in, into the disease process. Uh, that's sort of the short short answer. Um, and you know that's really what I've been doing since I started as a graduate student, uh, developing sort of biophysically realistic models, um, making them computationally tractable, being able to run them on you know increasingly larger computers over over generations. Uh, and using them to derive insight into into the mechanisms of disease, and uh, you know that that work has sort of meandered over time. You know, from uh, cardiac to some neural work, and you know now I'm doing a little work in uh, in pulmonology. But basically, it's the same idea: is that you know how can you use models and computation to to understand basic mechanisms? It's sort of two forty four on steroids, if you. If you know. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm sure, you know, it's been really exciting to sort of stay in the same area for so long, you know, to definitely see how it's progressed. And I wanted to ask, you know, how did starting the Center for Neuroengineering at Duke play into that? You know, could you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, that's an interesting story because, um, you know, I've done all my work uh, in cardiac electrophysiology. Um, You know, I, I think if if at the time 
I had thought more of it, I probably would have done more brain-related or neuro-related research. Uh, but cardiac at the, that time was a pretty hot topic. It really was. It was there was a lot going on in the field. Um, Duke was a hub for cardiac electrophysiology. It was probably, at that moment in time, it was probably the best place in the world to do cardiac electrophysiology. Uh, and, you know, the hiring of Professor Plonzi, uh, you know, just upped the ante because, you know, he was a National Academy, well, became a member of the National Academy. Professor Barr's work, Professor Spock, um, Professor Kutzi. Uh, uh, then there were just a whole host of other folks in the, in the in departments of physiology, which doesn't exist anymore, working in this field. And it was, like I said, it was probably the pe premier place in the, in the 1980s. So, so I was attracted to that, you know, that, that area. As a faculty member, you know, and I think it's true for all people who get involved in research is that you kind of, you know, get interested in other things over time. And so it was at the tail end of my, um, of my first, uh, you know, phase of faculty life. You know, there's three phases of faculty life to become an assistant professor, get tenure, and then become a full professor. And so, um, after getting tenure, I started to think about what other ways could I apply what I know to the body. And so at that moment in time, brain research was becoming a little bit more intriguing to me. And, you know, I was always interested in the brain, but I didn't have a, an avenue. And I wasn't about to make a dramatic shift in my life just about before I got tenure. So I... Um, so I said, you know, I could probably apply what I know to neuro, uh, but I don't know anything about the field. And, and I, made a, I reached out to a, uh, a faculty member uh, at another institution, and he said, well, you should talk to Miguel Nicolelli's in your neuro neurobiology department. And I said, hmm, we have a neurobiology department? Uh, <laughs> and, and so I contacted him. We had lunch, and, you know, we were like, wow, there's a lot we can do. Uh, between BME and neurobiology. I mean, a lot of the things that he was doing of trying to map the brain using, uh, you know, thousands of electrodes or hundreds of electrodes at the time, we were doing in the heart at the same time. We were doing the same thing. Professor Wolf had built this 528-channel mapping system. Uh, Professor uh, Nicolelis was building a 500-channel neuro mapping system. Um, and so I saw tremendous analogies between the kind of work he was doing and what I was doing. And so we decided to work together and forge a relationship between BME and, um, and neurobiology uh, through him. And, you know, he, uh, you know, he's sort of an amazing scientist. Um, uh, you know, you just sort of let him go and you hang on his coattails and he's going to take you in, in tremendous directions. And so he had started this project, the Brain Machine Interface Project, um, with another faculty member uh, in, in Philadelphia and, and started doing some work here. And so we wrote a grant together. Um, he had never written an NSF grant, and we wrote an NSF grant together um, and got the thing started. And then DARPA became interested, and we created the center uh, basically in response to DARPA's interest because they want to fund a center and not a bunch of faculty members. So we made a center um, and uh, and that's how it all started. And it was sort of an amazing, you know, it was an amazing process to go from, you know, a lunch to literally having a monkey move a 
cursor on a computer screen with with its brain. Uh, you know, it was that 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 was like a literally a four year project to go from that lunch to that particular project. That's absolutely incredible. That's also really interesting to hear about the development and evolution of your specific field. If you were to pick a few topics about what you're excited about for the future of this field, what what would you say about that? Yeah, I think, you know, well, it's it's been it's a, it's actually fairly incredible how fast that field has sort of taken off. Um, you know, there's always been two areas that have been fascinating to me, and I think we have been lucky enough to sort of capture one of those areas uh, within biomedical engineering. So um, one area that is that is absolutely fascinating is uh, neuromodulation through electrical stimulation. And so when we created the Center uh, for Neuroengineering uh, at the time, I sort of made this plea out to the administration. I said, look, you know, it's Professor Nicolelli's, who's world known, and then it's myself and Professor Barr, I mean, sorry, Professor Wolf, who are really cardiac electrophysiology people sort of pretending to be neuroelectrophysiologists, <laughs> right? We, we really didn't have any track record in the field. Um, and I said, we need to have some real neuro people in the department. And so uh, I was able, luckily, to convince the upper administration to give a couple of faculty lines in this area. So I was fortunate enough immediately to hire Professor Grill uh, into the program. Uh, I had met him at a conference uh, um, and I knew of his work and knew of him and thought his area would be a great complement to the sort of things that we do. Um, and then I was able to get another faculty line um, and that we hired a, a faculty member who ended up leaving, but then we continued that line and, and ended up hiring Professor Summer. And then when I was chair, we hired two others, and now we have a new faculty member, Dr. McIntyre, coming. Uh, and so now we really have an unbelievable collection of neuroengineers in our department that really have captured the space of neuromodulation. I think we're probably among the best, if not the best, in that, in that space. Uh, Brain-machine interfaces, I think, is still uh, moving in the right direction, which is with some combination of technology and and AI all coming together. Um, you know, you probably know of um, uh, Elon Musk's company Neuralink. Well, Neuralink is basically Duke transferred over into San Francisco because a lot of the principal people working there were ex-Duke people. Um, yeah, isn't the one of the co-founders or CEO now? It's a Duke alum, right? Yeah, he's a Duke alum. He worked in Nicolelli's lab. Uh, you wow. know, one of the former students, wow. uh, Joey O'Doherty, is a key person at at, at uh, and in fact, you know, you've, if you look at what they do, you basically said that is exactly what we were doing in 2003, except they just had better toys than we did. Um, uh, and so, you know, that whole area has moved in now becoming much more potentially commercialized. We weren't quite there back in 2003, but it's certainly uh, gotten to the point where it may be commercialized. Uh, so I think those two areas of neuromodulation and the merging of AI and mach brain-machine interfaces is really the exciting new next steps for uh, neuroengineering. Wow. I mean, I think we could ask you all questions all day about your research, but I wanted to also cover, you know, your t experiences teaching because, you know, we, I, Becky and I had uh, Dr. Tadros for 244, but we had... You as sort of our professor for the statistics side, and you know, it was it was clear that 
you know, you're passionate about teaching. Could you tell us, you know, how that sort of plays into your research and, you know, what you enjoy about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny that um, I remember having a thought. I mean, this is sort of a little bit uh, critical of my undergraduate experience, but it's actually fairly true. Um, thinking, you know, engineering education could be a lot better, right? It could be a lot better than it is, right? Because it was very dry at the time. And I was thinking, well, what could I do actually to do that? And I had that thought somewhere when I was a junior or senior, but never really sort of thought about it. I think the first thing to know about me is that I come from a very, very long line of teachers, uh, or at least immediate line of teachers. My father was a teacher forever. My uncle was a teacher. His sons are teachers. My sister was a teacher. My mother was a teacher. Um, and so, you know, if there's a gene in me, it, there's probably a teaching gene, right? And um, and and so I've always thought of of research really as just as just teaching, right? I mean, it's getting ideas out into the world and making them understandable to a wider population, uh, not only to your colleagues but also to a bigger, broader group. Um, so teaching has al always been very important to me from the very beginning, and it's really what you know, drove me to be a professor in the first place. It wasn't research, it was teaching. Research was a means to become a teacher at a university. And uh, I learned very quickly that you needed to be a very good researcher to stay in a university. You couldn't, you couldn't not be a good researcher, so I had to do that. But, um, but teaching was very, always very important to me and continues to be very important to me. Um, yeah, it's, you know, the thing about research is that you you do it and then the response to your work is relatively, it takes a long time before you sort of see the fruits of your labor, right? You know, it's, not, it's like you may get a press, like when we did the Brain Machine Interface, we got some big press and it was exciting and all that. But, you know, it's not an immediate thing, right? It takes a little while for that to get, and it's sometimes not even direct, it's like indirect. But teaching is direct, right? You're, you're in front of a classroom and you're teaching and you can see somebody get it or you can see people get excited or you can see people get bored and you know you gotta change the way that you approach your, your lesson uh, or they ask you a really tough question and you didn't know how to answer it and you have to come back the next day and with your head down and say, okay, let me explain it to you. Um, that is really where it becomes a, a real experience. And so I've, you know, I've always recognized how important teaching is because, you know, you all are, are here for a short amount of time and, and uh, you know, it's important for you to sort of get excited about the work that you're doing in a classroom setting. And so I always find that if I don't bring enthusiasm to the class, the students aren't going to bring enthusiasm to it, right? They're not going to bring it. You got to help create that enthusiasm, keep them energized, however you can keep them energized. And everybody has their own style. Um, you know, I look back and I see Dr. Barr as one of my favorite teachers, but he's a very low-key guy. I don't know if you've ever taken a course with Dr. Barr, but he's very, very low-key, you know, very, very low-key. But somehow, everybody worked incredibly hard for Dr. Barr, and uh, because he always knew you could do more than just the minimum. And so you were always like trying to say, what can I possibly do that'll get Dr. Barr excited? And so you always were pushing your level up to be able to do that. Um, so, you know, I think that's what my role and that's why I enjoy teaching as much as I do. And I also think it's a way to be creative, right? I've been, I've created, I don't know, tens of classes over the years. Um, 
and uh, always try to teach them a little different. Every, every time I teach a class, I add something new that I've never taught before because it keeps it exciting for me. So it's like, I'm gonna try something that has about a 50% chance of failure and then see whether or not the students can uh, make it into a success. That's awesome. I, I love to hear that you still have that innovation and still like are passionate about developing courses and creating a positive experience for um, the, the students. Uh, on a separate note, as we wrap up, I was wondering if you have any piece of advice uh, that you would give to an incoming engineering student or an engineering student who's about to graduate. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think the, the, the field of engineering changes so fast. Um, and, you know, when I look back, it's like, you know, you, you made the comment about I, I could do Fourier transforms in my sleep. Well, you know, nobody does Fourier transforms anymore. At <laughs> the, the one point, it was important. Right. And in fact, you know, in my thesis, there's actually a whole component of it based on, on spectral, on, on some sort of spectral um, analysis that nobody ever would do anymore, right? It was just it was just a convenience because the computational speed to do the full problem was just not there at the time. So we had to do something in the Fourier space, right? Um, but the, it changes so quickly. It changes so fast. The field evolves. And so you need to have that sort of ability to adapt and learn as you go. So I think you want to make sure you have um, develop those skills to become a sort of a lifelong learning, whatever, whatever it is to do, you know, be able to learn on your own, uh, test yourself, you know, go do something, you know, like uh, take a course online and see whether or not you can learn the material or see if you can figure out some nuance to some problem that you haven't been able to, to solve before by, you know, going to the original text or going to the original literature. Uh, that is the thing that's going to be most valuable to you as you go forward, you know, because Everything that you've learned now is really just the structure for learning, but the material itself is going to change very, very rapidly. This is not true in all fields, but it's certainly true in engineering. So learn how to be a lifelong learner and, and be exci- you know, get excited about being a lifelong learner. It's like, you know, it's like it's a test for yourself. Can I, can I do it? Can I actually get to the point where I can, I can read this and figure it out? And that means, like I said, those fundamentals become very important your math becomes very important because if you don't have the math background, you can't go from the text to uh, conceptual understanding. Um, fortunately, we have so many, you know, so many things out there now. I mean, I, I, I tell people you could get an entire engineering degree just watching YouTube, right? It's just, it's just absolutely amazing. Yeah. You just watch YouTube videos <laughs> and almost everything you've learned in engineering to date, you can find a YouTube video on, which is absolutely amazing. But, the next step is to turn it into something, you know, so get involved in projects. So I would tell a student, get involved. I don't care what you do, do projects, you know, either get involved in a club or, you know, do it in your dorm. Now you can do it in your dorm room, right? You can actually build stuff that you couldn't build before. Build things, make things, learn things. And uh, I think you will, you will discover what you like about engineering, what really gets you excited about engineering. It's certainly not going to be the test or the, basic stuff although that's that material is fundamental and that's why we that's why we give it to you right like you all say well why are you making it do this because we know it's important (laughs) right it's important to have that 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 rigor in that background because otherwise you just hit a wall right you just hit a wall as to what you can do and uh and you you want to be able to do more 
I'm always amazed by the people who are so good at that, at, at those things, so facile with their math, that they can almost do anything. They can almost do anything. They can see the connections between different areas. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's, it takes time. Nobody can be an engineer in four years. That's, it's almost impossible to be an engineer in four years. It's, it's really a six or eight year process, but certainly not a four year process. And, and it's only at the end that you actually start to feel like, yeah, I'm finally getting it. I'm finally understanding how all this stuff comes together. And then it feels like it's gone, right? It's over. So, um, so you will, you know, it'll, it'll get easier. You'll get better at it. Um, appreciate the, the rigor, but, you know, test yourself and, and try to make sure that you have the facility to be a lifelong learner. That would be my best advice. Wow, I think there's a lot of really good advice in there. And I think, you know, I wish I sort of heard that <laughs> three years ago. Um, you know, I think you spoke a little bit about sort of the virtualization, if you will, of engineering education. I think that in this time, especially during the pandemic, of course, uh, classes have had to transition online. You know, given your passion for teaching and sort of the ways that you're constantly trying to innovate, what are your thoughts on how, you know, I mean, I'm hoping that the pandemic doesn't last too long, but what are your thoughts on how engineering education has changed or how it can be maintained up to that level that should be during the pandemic? Well, like I said, I think um, there's a lot of material. There's a lot of material online um, for training, for learning. Uh, you know, it, it, it is, it's amazing. I mean, it, it, you know, if you had the ability and you had the desire, you could do it all virtually, right? I mean, it's really just the motive. It's 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 how do you get motivated to continue to learn on your own, right? So that that's the challenge. That's that's you know that's in part that's the real difficulty I think in a uh, in a COVID world is when you sit in your own room without other people around you, it's hard to sort of feel the energy in the classroom. And there's an energy in the classroom where you see you know, like you remember in that statistics class where everybody was all at least engaged in statistics for an hour. It somehow raised the your ability to do that 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 work, um, and I think that that's important, right? I think it's important in anything we do. We're, we're very social creatures, um, so I think I, I just see it as a. These are these virtual tools are out there. They are just like books. They're just like they're just better versions of them. I'm like I'm a visual person. I like to see things. Uh, I, I listen now more. I hear better. I, you know, I, it's hard for me to read books. I get tired with my eyes, so I listen to books, and I can listen and, and, and absorb things much better that way. Uh, I, I get more out of a, um, a online video lecture than I do from reading a textbook now for whatever reason. I mean, it's just the way I've been sort of trained train my brain. So I think you just have to recognize that there's a lot out there. You also have to know how to cull it down so you don't spend hours and hours. Like you should be able to quickly be able to look at a lecture and say, "Not, not I don't connect to that one. Nope, not that one. Not that one. Not oh, that one." It it's almost like an overload of information. Yeah, it's an overload of information. And part of my job as a professor is to sort of help figure out where to go. You know, what is the useful path so you don't waste too much time because you can waste a lot of time in that in that uh, area. Uh, but you know, I. I don't know. I think online, this online learning can work, um, but the lack of community, I think, weakens the whole experience for everybody. And so 
you need to have some moment as a time where you come together and you all get excited together and see other people excited and um and i think that's you know that's the part that is hard to reproduce in an online environment Absolutely. Yeah. So I have one more question to ask uh, before we wrap up. Um, who is your favorite Duke basketball player of all time? Favorite Duke basketball player of all time? Well, I would probably have to say Grant Hill. And it's important to understand the context of Grant Hill. So Grant Hill, um, at, when we recruited Grant, he was the sort of missing piece, this sort of uber-athletic, uh, uber-intellectual player that Duke always kind of missed out on. Carolina used to get those guys, but Duke didn't get those guys. But then Duke got Grant Hill. And, of course, it was no accident that the year they got Grant Hill, they won the national championship. And then they won the national championship the next year. And then they went to the national championship game his senior year and were within six inches of winning that national championship game with Grant Hill as the only player on that team. And was, I mean, there were some other good players, but he was the best player by far. He literally took that entire team and almost won a national championship by himself. So I would have to put Grant Hill at the very top. Of course, he lasted for four years, so I got to see him from when he was a young freshman. And then the best part of the Grant Hill story is that when I was a um, when I was on uh, the academic council, I was chair of the academic council here at Duke. His mom, uh, Janice Hill, Janet Hill, was on the board of trustees, and I got to, I got to meet her, and she's a great woman. She's an unbelievable woman, uh, and um, a no nonsense person. So I got to know her, and then um, one time uh we had it we used, we used to have these dinners with the board of trustees uh and the and the other members of the executive committee of the academic council and um it was made known to me that she was going to invite her husband Calvin Hill who was a famous football player when I was a I was a young kid and I watched football back then and so I was I made sure that I sat at the table next to Janet Hill and Calvin Hill and we had, you know, the best conversation, talked about Grant, talked about football, talked about, you know, the whole That's experience. So cool. And so, so Grant Hill has to be my favorite basketball player. And his mom is right up there. was one of my favorite people. <laughs> That's awesome. Dr. Rodriguez, thank you so much for taking the time. This is a great conversation. Um, really appreciate it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, thank you for inviting me. And uh, hopefully I'll see you all in the real world uh, next semester. It was really great to talk to Dr. Enriquez. I mean, not just to hear about all the awesome research that he's been a part of and um, helped facilitate at Duke, but also some of the traditions that he and his friends were involved with when they were undergrads. I mean, the fact that he had to wait in so many lines all the time, I think that that definitely hasn't changed at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I also thought that it was really cool to hear how Duke in general has evolved and how engineering and, and especially his field of computing has evolved dramatically since he was there. Um, I could never imagine going to a building to write my code and then using a punch card and having to wait for that. Um, it's just crazy how different it is now than it was then. Yeah, and it's also really cool to see how, how some of the things that he was involved with, like design, you know, these 
these classes that were not officially classified as design but are sort of hallmarks of BME today, how they've progressed and how he actually got to experience BME um, sort of when it was just starting out. Um, he mentioned that Duke was one of the first places to have BME. So it's, it's yeah. really cool that he's also on the flip side of that and helping innovate classes for students today. Yeah, for sure. Just seeing what's going on under the hood of at the end of the day, we see all these big classes and big curriculum changes, like you said, and it's really cool to hear from his perspective how someone will just have an idea and then he'll implement it and make it into a class. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there are just so many levels to that conversation. Also, the anecdote about meeting Grant Hill and his mom. I mean, that was amazing. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, he's a really, really interesting, easy to talk to professor. And it was a great opportunity for Ron and I to take a class with him in the past and also to have this conversation with him today. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. If you want to follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, it's After Office Hours. You can also follow us on Instagram at after double underscore office hours. Thanks so much and see you next time.